Okay, now we're cooking. John chapter 11. Gang, grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 11 this morning. You're going to get... Oh, Lee's got a... All righty. Well, we'll, we'll do... Uh, we need an advertisement or something here. <laughs> all right. All right. You're going to give that a whirl, are you? Talk amongst yourself. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, read John 11. Go ahead. Give it a, give it a little boost. I guess you don't need a commentary on this, do you? Okay, there we are. This has to come off, too. All right, here we go. Hold that through. My word, this is a workout. I think I get an extra couple minutes for this, do I? Yep. Oh, good. <laughs> Three. All righty. This thing better work, Lee. That's all I got to tell you, brother. Oh, just a minute. Hang on. All right. Hey. Hey. Hey, 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 hey. All right. Let me shed that. All right. Wow. Lost about 10 pounds doing that. Woo. Boy, oh, boy. All right, John 11. That's where I was trying to take you. John chapter 11. I'm going to take you to my favorite passage. That's where we're going. So uh, let's go to verse 17. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Uh, it's a long one, so I won't read it all. But John 11, and we're heading over to verse 17. And uh, let's hear God's word for a few moments. On, this, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then the great question, do you believe this? Have you ever had your, your perspective on someone or something completely changed? Ever had that experience? I remember a, a lot of years ago now at uh, one of the churches that I was serving at. I wasn't at the church very long before I got wind that there was a gentleman in the church who was considered to be a bit of a troublemaker. And 
no kidding, our very first business meeting that I was at, it wasn't very long into the meeting that up got this gentleman, and he was objecting to everything. And it was kind of throwing a wrench in the whole works. And I remember after saying to myself, oh, well, <clears throat> here's somebody I got to avoid. I'll take the, you know, the long path around when I see him. And, uh, but God has a sense of humor, does he not? Uh, within about a year of that, I found myself leading a small group, of all things, in his home. And it was remarkable because God used that to change my perspective of this fella completely. I learned very quickly that he had a deep love for the Word of God and a deep love for his family. And every time he shared his testimony, I'd watch him weep because he was overwhelmed by God's grace. And this fellow actually had a, a deep commitment to his local church. He just wanted the best for it. He really did. We really, over time, became very dear friends. And he became quite a supporter of myself in ministry. And I can say that I, I love this guy. He was a real brother in Christ. And we would talk about stuff to try and help him uh, in those moments when he just kind of couldn't help himself. Well, you know, when we get into John chapter 11 this morning, you're going to discover, I believe, that, that uh, the perspective that Martha and Mary had about life and death was completely challenged and changed by the Lord Jesus' divine perspective on life and death. Uh, one commentator said this, and I think he's right, in John 11, we see the sister's ground-level perspective in contrast to Jesus' divine perspective. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got this problem, too. I've got stuff that I don't get. I've got perspectives on life and death that, frankly, need to be challenged and changed by Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm afraid there are many times in my life when I'm more earthbound than I am heavenly bound in my perspectives and the things that I say and do. And we are often more preoccupied with this world and with our own little kingdoms than we are with the kingdom of Christ and with eternity. And so I find it quite interesting that when you look at John chapter 11, uh, it's, it's, it, it's interesting to see where it lands in the story of Christ and in John's gospel. John, when you get to chapter 11, is beginning to enter into the last phases of the life of the Lord Jesus. And from chapter 11 to chapter 20, he brackets this section of his gospel, first with the resurrection of Lazarus, and then with the resurrection of Christ. And you see him emphasizing three critical words that come up repeatedly in John's gospel. He'll talk about the word believe, He'll talk about the importance of life, and he will emphasize the glory of Christ. And all three of these will come up repeatedly in those chapters from 11 to 20. And I really do believe that the whole incident that is found here in John chapter 11 was designed by the Lord Jesus clearly to teach his disciples and this family that is uh, what his own pending death was actually going to achieve and how it would conquer man's greatest enemy, 
which is death, and that would be replaced with man's greatest need, which is eternal life, and all this would take place for the glory of the Father and the Son. And so this morning, I want to unpack this with you and look at it really from three perspectives, starting off with the situation. What's the situation that we find here in John chapter 11? Well, you discover that this is the, probably the last, this is the last, and many would claim the greatest miracle of Christ of the seven that John records in this gospel. And here, in this incident, the Lord Jesus tackles head-on the subject of death. You see, if you go back to chapter 10, you discover that in 10, Christ had found himself again in another conflict, and again the conflict was on his own deity, his identity as God come in the flesh, and there were a group of Jews in Jerusalem who simply didn't buy it from at all, and the end result of Christ's claim is that they wanted to both stone him and to seize him. And so in John 11, you have this running commentary that we've seen repeatedly of unbelief that confronts the living Christ. And so with the crowd's attempt to seize Christ, the text tells us a little further along that in verse 40 that he, he left them, he crossed back over the Jordan, and the end result was that he stayed wherever this place was that John had been baptizing in the early days. And I find the uh, verse 42 quite wonderful in that in contrast to the unbelief he had just encountered in Jerusalem, this group, we're told, believed in Christ and trusted in him in verse 42. And so while all that was going on, we read this in chapter 11 and verse 3. This message is sent to Jesus while he's here. And it came from Lazarus' sisters, and the word they sent was simply this, Lord, the one you love is sick. And in this message, really, was a response that they had expected from Jesus. They, the sisters, really did believe that Christ would drop everything he was doing right then and there and head towards Bethany so that he could get to Lazarus and he could change the dynamics of what was going on in that home. I mean, as you work your way through the whole text in verse 22 and in verse 32, you hear the both sisters say to Jesus, Jesus, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. You see, that was the premise. They believed that fully. Jesus, if you get here, our brother won't be subject to death. And in fact, I think they actually believed as well that Jesus, if you can't come, would you just say a word of prayer? Would you just ask the Father to spare your, this, uh, our brother? Because this is the one you love. This isn't just any ordinary fellow. We aren't just any ordinary family. We're the family you love the most. We're the family that you've been interacting the most with. In fact, you and I both know as you work your way through the gospel account that this home was a very special home for Christ, a place of refuge for him. I'm sure he'd had many wonderful conversations and meals here. And 
That's implied by John as he tells us here. You'll notice this in verse 2, chapter 11 of John. He talks about Mary. And he tells us, hey, this is the Mary that had poured perfume on the Lord and had wiped his feet with her hair. So there was a very special relationship here. And they were absolutely certain that he would do whatever he could to fix the situation. In fact, in their minds, the most loving thing that Jesus could do for the one he loved is to spare him from death. And they were fully convinced of that. Well, so that's the situation that we find ourselves in here in John 11. Now notice the two dilemmas that come up. Two different dilemmas. I'm not, I'm not working? Oh. That's okay. We'll give this a whirl. I think I've used every mic this morning. All right. Now you can hear me. I did. I, do I have to start again? Oh, good heavens. Well, we're not. Well, the situation, you got the situation. You get it. Lazarus is sick unto death. There's nothing they can do to, to reverse it, and they need Jesus' help. And he's going to come now, or it's game over. And they really thought he was going to come. They were certain of it. They were certain of it because of the relationship they had formed with Jesus. Well, the text now takes us into two dilemmas that they hadn't anticipated. Two dilemmas. The first one comes up here in verse 4. And Oh, no, not verse 4. Pardon me. I'm getting ahead of myself here. In verse 6, that's where it is. Verse 6 is what I meant to tell you. Now, notice what Jesus does. He gets the news, and uh, he says in verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. And then here's what he does in verse 6. That is our first dilemma. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, I don't know about you, but that's shocking. Like, what? He didn't even respond. He didn't even utter a prayer. He just stayed put. He did nothing, in essence. Absolutely nothing with the news that the one he loved was deadly sick. Now, you and I would have expected Jesus to, in fact, act at this moment. But, you know, here's the truth of the matter is that what we have in verse 6 is a commentary to help you and I understand why it is that there are times in our lives when God delays his action, where he causes us to have to wait for the answer. You know, if you're like me, I want instant answers, instant action from the living God. When I tell him something, and there's an issue going on in my life, if you're like me, I want him to drop everything he's doing and run to my aid. Well, the truth of the matter is God doesn't do that. God often does the exact opposite. And so what that brings into our lives is some confusion and dismay because we just don't get, we don't understand God's delays and actions sometimes. We get pretty impatient with God and then we find ourselves questioning him, accusing him of being rather uncaring and maybe a little cruel to us in the way in which he's handled the situation. Well, there are actually several 
reasons for God's delays in our lives, and they're found here in the text. Several reasons for God's delays in our lives. The first one I'm going to take you back is found in verse 4. Listen to Jesus' words here. They're very instructive. He says, and maybe this is the word he sent back to the sisters, but here's what he says. This sickness will not end in death. No, he says. It is for God's glory. So the God's son may be glorified through it. You see, right away, what we're being told here is God's delays are purposeful. God's delays in our lives in this situation is purposeful. You see, there was something even greater that God wanted to accomplish that day in his delay. And so he could not respond immediately to the request. And you know, quite often, when God causes us to wait, it is so that when the answer finally does arrive, it is abundantly clear to you and to I that this is an act of God alone. It becomes clear to us that we contributed nothing to the outcome, but it's the result completely of God's doing and God's actions that bring him alone the glory. You see, this is what Jesus actually told the disciples and Martha that day. He made it very clear to them, and if you look at verse 4 and then go down to verse 11, and then over to verse 40, you discover very quickly that what was at stake here was the glory of Christ. Christ understood that this was a very special moment in which he himself could reveal his own glory. And so he says to them, I will fulfill that this sickness will not end up death in death, and I will demonstrate to you that Lazarus has only fallen asleep and that I'm going to wake him up. If he had not delayed, then all this would have been missed. And so Jesus' intention here was for Lazarus and for the family and those around him that day to see the greater good. The God is a God who always fulfills the injunction of Romans 8.28. He works everything out for our good continually, always, and everything he does. And all that he does is always done for his glory, always. And that's the case in our lives as well. The second thing we see here is not only is God's delay purposeful, but God's delay is for the strengthening of their faith. There was something here that they needed to learn and to be taught that day. And again, if you look at verse 14, go down to verse 14 and listen to what Jesus says here to his men. He says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. For what reason? So that you may believe. So that you may believe. The same thing occurs again if you work your way down to verse 26 and then verse 40 and 41 and 45. You'll see that this word believe is repeated constantly. Again, one of the major themes found in John's gospel. And so belief was at stake here. The whole account is bookended, frankly, by the unbelief that surrounds the Lord Jesus. But here are some that do believe. And Christ's concern was that they would believe and understand fully who he was. Because the truth of the matter is that Martha and Mary and the disciples 
had many things yet to learn about the Lord Jesus. Their belief was actually quite shallow. And they had misperceptions as to who Christ was. And so gradually he pulls the curtain back and continues to help them to understand further that in he is, that he indeed is God, a very God. He is God in the flesh. And he continues to help them see his deity in snapshots all throughout his life. And he does that here as he concludes really his public ministry in John chapter 11. We find that the Lord Jesus here is, is going to prove one more time to them as he said already to them back in chapter 10 and 38, the Father is in me and I in the Father. And as he already had said to them back in chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. And so the Lord Jesus is going to give them one final proof before the cross that that was absolutely the case and was true of him. And so Christ does what he does here in delaying his response for the sake of a teaching moment. So they would learn something new and dramatic about the living Christ. Isn't that true in our lives too? When Christ delays something, you need to ask him, what is it, Lord, you're trying to teach me? What is it that I don't understand correctly or fully? Help me to see what's going on from your perspective and to learn something new about your character and ways in my life that I need to know today, tomorrow, and the next day. But there's a third reason for his delay here found in the text, and that was so that Jesus could prove his love to them. It was proof of his love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Now you notice here, back in uh, verse 3, that the sisters had sent word to Christ, the one you love is sick. And then if you go down to verse 5, you notice that the Lord Jesus says, it's said of Christ, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There are two different words here in the original for the word love. And the word love that is expressed in verse 5 that the Lord Jesus had for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus is the word agape. So what the Lord Jesus was teaching them here is that God's love isn't a pampering love. It is a purifying love. God's love isn't a sentimental, fuzzy kind of love. No, it is a sanctifying love. And here he was expressing that to them in his delay, that God was in fact at work, and he was at work, at work for their eternal good. He wasn't being indifferent or unloving in anything he was doing towards them, but rather it was an, expressions, an expression of God's eternal love for them in the actions that he was enacting that day in this situation. This is something we need to learn, do we not? You and I as God's children often think like the sisters did. And they were thinking that if God really did love us, then he would show up here and he would fix the situation and he would restore Lazarus to full health and we would just carry on like we've always done as a family. That's how they thought. They really thought that God's love would be indicated by God doing exactly what they wanted and when, he, when they wanted him to do it. But you know what? That isn't always the way God works, is it? In fact, often he does. He does, the quite, he does often the opposite of that in our lives. 
The Word of God reminds us in Isaiah chapter 55 and 9, the following. Let me take you there because uh, this is what you're seeing here in living color in, the, uh, in this moment in John chapter 11. Here's what it says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, as you work your way through the Word of God, you see this being unfolded again and again and again. In fact, if you work your way right back to the very beginning and the fall of man, we see this taking place. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, you would expect that at that exact moment, the, weight, the full weight of God's glory, or God's wrath, I should say, would have fallen on them immediately, just as God said, you will die if you partake of that tree. And that they would have at that very moment known the sense of death in its fullness. But that isn't the case. God delays it. God delays it. And he delays it so that his grace can enter the picture for the first time in the scriptures, and the promise of Genesis 3, 15 is given, and that becomes the central theme, the thread that runs throughout the entirety of the scriptures as God's redemptive plan is unfolded before our very eyes. And so God's delays are purposeful always. God's delays are to teach us something and to strengthen our faith. God's delays are to demonstrate his eternal love for us that is always sanctifying. And I've experienced this myself in my own life. What many of you don't know is that before I came to West Highland, after 13 years of being at a church, I was unemployed. And I didn't know what God had for me next. I remember the despair I felt in my own heart, wondering if I'd ever be in ministry again. In fact, I had thought that maybe I'll spend the rest of my days stacking cans at Sobeys. I just wasn't sure what God was up to, and his delay seemed to be cruel. I remember pleading with him, and four months in, wondering, God, uh, what's up? Do I not have a call in my life? Am I all done? Is it, is it over? Is it Time for me just to push a broom? What is this? And I remember the frustration in my own heart, wondering, what kind of love is this that I have to be in such pain? But little did I know that God's delay was purposeful. It was moments in which he would teach me something new about himself and myself. And it was loving. Because after four months, I remember contacting navigators. I thought, well, I have a friend there. Maybe he's got something for me. I don't know what else to do, so I called my friend at Navigators, and he said, well, yeah, there could be something. i tell you what, I want you to go to West Highland. There's a conference going on there in November, and I want you to, to observe it. And I said, oh, okay, West Highland. All right, I'll go over and see that. And uh, just so happened I knew Pastor John because he and I had done a, a camp ministry together about two years before this. So over I came to West Highland in November of 2018. And lo and behold, if I don't sit down with Dave Roberts, I didn't know Dave from a hole in the ground. 
But that's the table I found, and that's where I sat, and there's Dave and I having a chat, and I had no idea that, that, uh, of what, what God was up to. And then the next day, I had lunch with Pastor John. We took off to the lunchroom. Now, I felt kind of bad, you know what I mean? I'm supposed to be there for navigators. And here I am tooting off with Pastor John. But anyway, that's between you and I, the doorpost. Don't tell anybody that. And, uh, and he says to me, hey, Ken, we have an opening here. Uh, Dave Roberts is on his way over to Africa. Would you fill in for six months? I thought, well, Lord, I got nothing else to do. Uh, maybe I should. So I ended up talking to Paul and uh, Tom, and lo and behold, here I am. Can you believe it? And so the Lord used that to open a door for me and, uh, and to bring me to West Highland. But his delay during those days was very painful. But boy, it was purposeful. It was very purposeful. So that's what our God does. And so his delay does one more thing, has one more proof. And that is, often God's delays, we need to remember this, and this is what he was teaching me, is that his delays are under his sovereign control. God is in it, totally and completely. And in spite of how it may look to us or it may feel to us, God has it in his hand. And this delay that day was under the control of Christ. And his absence wasn't as the sisters thought, but it was indifference. But rather, it was an act of his sovereignty. You see, God is never inactive, never absent, and never uncaring towards us. God is always doing something that accomplishes his will and to further his kingdom in our lives always. He does hear, as 1 Peter chapter 3 says, the cry of his child. And he is always attentive to your needs, even when it seems that heaven is death. That's exactly how Mary and Martha felt that day. But there's another dilemma. So the first one is his delay and what that can do to us, and the misinterpretations we can arrive at in the midst of it. Here's the second delay, and that's found in verse 14. Let's go back to John. (coughs) Verse 14. Now, here's what they weren't expecting. But here was the reality. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to the guys, the fellas, Lazarus is dead. Well, that's the second dilemma. Because that just isn't what the sisters wanted one iota. They thought Jesus was going to reverse this situation. And as you work your way through the text of the scriptures here in John 11, John is making it very clear that this is an irreversible and fixed situation. He is gone. He isn't coming back. And we know that from the the number of of descriptors that John uses here to describe what's happened to Lazarus. He is spoken of here as as having fallen asleep. Verse 13, there it talks about death. Verse 17, he's been in the tomb. Verse 19, the sisters have a loss. Verse 21, He's died. Verse 39, there's a bad odor. And in verse 44, it again talks about him being dead and the grave clothes. So the message is pretty clear. 
He's gone. And the point that John wants us to understand, as did the readers, is that there was absolutely nothing that Mary or Martha could have done to stop this. Nothing. Nor could have anyone else. And there was now nothing they could do to reverse this. This was a fixed, settled state. And now all they had was grief and sorrow. And we see this in the text. Again, the emphasis here is that the home now of Lazarus has become a place of, of terrible mourning and, uh, and tears and heartache and heartbreak. And, and that's all the, the, the sisters had now been left with. This was a devastating blow to them. And John underscores that in the text. You know, death is devastating to us as well, is it not? Death is final, and we sure feel helpless before its presence. And frankly, bottom line, there's nothing nice about death whatsoever. And in spite of all the billions and billions that are spent every year on creams and cosmetics and medical procedures and medicines to reverse the effects of aging, we stand helpless before it. Death has come to all of us, will come to all of us. Death has come to all of our families. And frankly, we all know, we all know this all too well because if there's one business that hasn't slowed up or been closed for even a second during COVID, it's the funeral business. Sadly, it has thrived, and while lots and lots of efforts have gone into Preventing COVID's devastating and deadly effects, millions have still died, and more, even now, lie on the edge of eternity. You see, death is, as the Bible says, mankind's last enemy. He is your enemy. I mean, right from the fall, this reality became so, because all of a sudden the text of Scripture changes, and in Genesis 5.5, you now read these words that were never to be read or ever to be enacted, and they are these, then he died. And Moses then recounts and repeats this phrase eight more times to emphasize to us that the curse was now in place, and death was now the state and the reality of mankind. You know, several years ago, I was uh, changing a light bulb at our house. I was on a ladder outside, and just as I reached up to unscrew this light that had burned out, a hornet flew out of this light socket, and no kidding, right up my nose. Imagine that. And it stung me. Well, I'll tell you, I just about flipped off this ladder. The pain was searing, and I'm bawling like a baby. And running into the house so I can get this, you know, the comfort of Leslie, because I didn't know where else to go. But I'll tell you, all that to illustrate this, death hurts. It hurts, man. And it stings. Yes, Jesus has taken out the permanence of the sting, but it still stings. It still does. It still affects us greatly. And the fact of the matter is, none of us get a pass from death, do we? None of us do. 
It doesn't really matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. The fact of the matter is we live in a fallen world and we have a fallen condition and we are subject to death because of it. You know, Romans chapter 3 and 23 reminds us that sin has earned us death. And all of us, according to the Bible, have died spiritually. That's the end result. The Bible is very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, and then again in Colossians chapter 2, that you and I, all of mankind, is spiritually dead before the living God as a result of this. We're not just physically, we're not just going to be physically dead, but we are spiritually dead. We have no spiritual life within. We have no way of fixing our sin condition before God. We have no way of ever satisfying a holy God. And we have no way of ever saving ourselves from the condition that we are now in. And so we are in danger of experiencing what the Bible calls the second death. And this is found in Revelation chapter 2 several times. Chapter 20, chapter 21, it's described in 2 Thessalonians 1. And that is simply this, that if you and I die without Jesus tonight, then my dear friend, you will spend eternity in hell. Eternally separated forever and ever from God and from all of his grace and all of his goodness and all of his mercy. And you will be subject only to his unending wrath forever and ever and ever. That is the second death. And so here's the truth of the matter. This isn't great news, but this is our dilemma. It's the same dilemma that Martha and Mary and that whole crowd face that same day. That is this, mankind is helpless before the last enemy, which is physical death, and helplessly dead spiritually before a holy God. So what's the solution? Well, the solution, thank God, is Jesus The solution is illustrated here in John chapter 11 for us. There is our solution to the dilemma that we find ourselves in. Jesus is mankind's only hope. And so the Lord Jesus says to Martha in verse 25, and here is one of the great I am statements from Christ. There are seven found in scripture. This is the fifth found here in John's gospel where he says here in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Here the Lord Jesus takes one of the greatest descriptions and titles and names that God ever took to himself found in the Old Testament in Acts chapter 3, 14, and now he applies it to himself. And he says to the sisters, girls, I haven't just come to to, uh, confront death. No, I've come to conquer death. I've come to destroy it once and for all, and I've come to reverse its eternal sting because I alone am the sovereign one over life and death. And so in John chapter 11, Jesus reminds us of several things, that he is the resurrection and the life. Well, you and I may be completely helpless before death and completely helpless before the grave. The good news found in the Holy Scripture is is simply this, Jesus is not. Jesus is not helpless before these things. Not only has he the ability to raise the dead to life, but Jesus 
wonderfully has the ability to give us life because he is life itself, real life, true life, eternal life, the source and possessor of all life. He can make the spiritually dead alive, just as he says here in the scriptures. And he can make a dead body come to life again and to be like his glorious life. I mean, aren't you looking forward to the day when you will shed this limited, decaying shell? I don't know about you, but I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait for the day when I don't have to do this. I'll tell you, it's going to be glorious, is it not? No aches and pains. Never subject to death ever again. No in need of all these creams and cosmetics that so-called reverse the aging effect. You won't need them. You won't need them. The Lord Jesus is going to give to you and I who are in Christ a body that is imperishable and immortal. immortal. And so you and I can rejoice that he does possess absolute power over death and he will conquer it completely. And that's the whole point in illustration of John chapter 11 is for Jesus to illustrate that in living color. You see, what Jesus does here in John 11, and he does it, frankly, all through the Gospels, he takes this, this abstract con- concept of the resurrection and he gives feet to it. He takes, he takes something that is in the shadows and brings it into the light of the, of the New Testament. He takes this doctrine and now he defines it as himself, as the one who is the fulfiller of it. You see, here's the truth of the matter, folks. When death comes knocking on your door, and someday it will, you want more than just an abstract concept as you face eternity. What you want, my friend, is the person of Christ who alone is the death buster and the giver of life. That's who you need. And Jesus illustrates that here. But here's the second thing Jesus illustrates in John chapter 11. And that is that the Lord Jesus enters into and understands our own personal grief. I just love verse 35. It's the shortest verse, maybe in the entire Bible, but it is a powerful verse. And it simply says this, Jesus wept. Now the context of verse 35 is back up in verse 33. And here's what it says. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, it says here he was deeply deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now that is, that gives us a commentary as to why he wept. Now the words here, deeply moved in spirit and trouble. In the original Greek, it's the word here for a horse snorting. Now what does that mean? It means here that what Jesus expressed is that he sighed. And he sighed with indignation. And he sighed with outrage and anger, not over the weeping, but over what sin had caused in the life of this dear family. He looked at his creation and it was marred. 
He was groaning under the weight of the curse. He looked around and he saw the, the destruction and devastation that sin had caused. And from the tip of his head to the tip of his toes, he felt it. And he sighed with it. And he began to weep. Because he knew that this was not what God had originally intended for man to know or to feel. This wasn't the way it was ever supposed to be. Even though he knew that in a few moments he would reverse and change the dynamics of that moment. But the point is that Jesus felt the brokenness that was all around him in the life of Martha and Mary and the rest of the crowd that had gathered with them to mourn the loss of their brother. And he wept. And tears rolled down his cheeks as they led the Lord Jesus to the place where they had buried him. Listen, listen. Don't ever think that Jesus doesn't understand the depths of your despair. He does. And don't ever think that Jesus is unmoved by your pain and plight. He is. He is. I read this in an article this week that really struck me. It says the following. The intensity of human emotion and human sorrow is deeply felt by God. We can trust in Jesus because he's the savior of the world, but also because he knows what it is like to be human. He was without sin, but not without heartbreak. When we remember God has experienced pain himself, we can rest assured he will have compassion for us in the middle of our own pain. He really is a sympathetic high priest who in all points was tempted just like us, but without sin. And he really can and he really does provide the grace you need in your time of need. Reach out to him because he understands your pain. Thirdly, not only is Jesus the resurrection and the life, not only does Jesus enter and understand our own grief in John chapter 11, but thirdly, Jesus uses death. Listen, he uses death as a pathway to seeing the glory of God. Now this is very clear in the text. And he repeats it throughout this entire incident, for really from start to finish, that what was at stake here was a revelation of his glory. And the raising of Lazarus was so that he could display to the crowd and to especially to Martha and Mary his own personal glory, that he was the possessor of God's glory in all its fullness. Otherwise, it would have been missed. It would have been missed. And no doubt this crowd had been to all kinds of funerals by this point, but I would suggest to you that this is the very first time and maybe the only time they would witness firsthand a resurrection. And so when the Lord Jesus in verse 43 said, Lazarus, come forth, he did. He did. And it was a precursor of that day that would come when Jesus himself would come forth from the grave. And you know, I think the commentators are right that if Jesus hadn't at that exact moment said the word Lazarus, then he would have emptied every tomb that there was around him that day. 
everyone would have been raised from the dead. And so this incident points us forward, reminds us that Jesus' own pending death and his own resurrection would be the apex and the pinnacle of God's glory like nothing else found in Holy Scripture. And you and I know this truth, but we need to be reminded of it from John 11 that all that God does is for his glory and for our good. God never misses a beat in this regard. And, And that includes the bad and the ugly in your life. God brought us to Christ according to Ephesians chapter 1, 6, so that he might display to you and I on a continual basis his glorious grace. And even though death is horrible, and even though it's a hard reality for us, the truth of the matter is that in the hands of the living God, he has chosen to use death as the pathway for the believer to be able to enter into the very presence of the glory of Christ himself. That's how God changes what's worst to become something that is the best. Fourthly, the resurrection isn't just a future promise, but it's a present reality. You know, one of the glorious pictures found in Scripture are the descriptors that the Bible uses to describe a soul that's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John 5, it describes the work of the Spirit within us when we come to Christ as passing from death to life. And in John chapter 3 and 3, you know this already from the lips of the Lord Jesus, that he describes this act as the act of the new birth. And when this happens, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that you and I then become new creations in Christ Jesus. And the whole reason that we are now identified as new creations is so that he can remind you and I that we have been made alive in Christ. And the end result of this is that now you have God's life within if you're a believer this morning. And that life within is the same life and power that raised Jesus from the dead. And the reason that now exists in you is to help you and I to live out the Christian life. It's to help you and I know the hope that we have within. It's to to help you and I anticipate the riches of his glorious inheritance. It's to help you and I look forward to that day when the Lord Jesus himself will be fully exalted and glorified without end. And it's to remind us that someday God will raise our bodies and unite our souls to be with Christ forever and ever and ever. And so you see, John 11 is a snapshot of what lies ahead for the believer. As Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, reuniting him with family and friends and turning their deep sorrow and despair into unspeakable joy, Jesus, through all this, was pointing the sisters and that crowd to himself, that he alone is the great death defeater and the great life giver. And John 11 illustrates this for our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
for the text of this scripture. Lord, what a, what a moment that it must have been when they saw that brother come back to life, illustrating, Lord, what Jesus himself would experience for our redemption, for our good, for our glorification, for our resurrection. And so, Father, help us that we will rejoice in that living hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. So it all comes down to this question that Jesus asked Martha that day. He said to her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? You see, to, be to believe is to place your full confidence in Christ and in his finished work on Calvary because only he was the one who was able to conquer death and in exchange give you life. To believe is to abandon your reliance on yourself and everything else and to place your reliance only and always in Jesus. So my friend, does your hope today and tomorrow rest in Jesus alone? Does it? Is your faith grounded in the unchanging Christ or is it at the mercy of an ever-changing world? Do you believe with a absolute certainty that Jesus is for you today, tomorrow, and the next day, the resurrection and the life? Or are you fearful of what the future holds? Friend, you don't have to be fearful anymore. The Bible is very clear that there is no other name given amongst men by which we must be saved. And all those, the Bible says, that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I urge you now, right now, to place your full trust in the living Christ who is the resurrection and the life. For those of you who are believers in Christ, let me remind you of several things. First of all, that Jesus is the giver of life in a world gone wrong. So draw your life every day from his life. Second, that Jesus has conquered death both spiritually and physically. See, you have, you have a living, secure hope. Thirdly, that Jesus' delays are God-ordained, purposeful, and controlled. So don't panic when it seems as if God isn't responding. Fourthly, that Jesus' resurrection power does reside in you right now. So depend upon it and use it to live righteously. Fifthly, that Jesus really, really does understand your tears and your pains and your frustrations. So draw near to him because he's there to help you through it all. And lastly, it's this, that Jesus has proven and promises had a better day. In fact, a glory-filled day is ahead for you and me who are in Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, so look forward to it, would you? Would you live in light of it each and every day? Because someday you will see the face of the one who is the resurrection and the life. God bless you.